But I'm curious, who here remembers Y2K, or the Y2K bug, as it was called? For those who either don't remember or didn't exist in the year 2000, the anxiety was caused because early computer systems were programmed using a two-digit code for the year instead of a four-digit code. So instead of the date reading 1970, it would just read 70. And there was worry about how computers would handle the change from 99 to 00. Would they correctly interpret the 00 as the year 2000 or incorrectly as the year 1900 or something else? And there were some people who feared the worst if computer systems were to fail. They envisioned the possibility of power grids being knocked out, banks failing, planes falling out of the sky, food shortages, and mass unemployment. But then December 31st, 1999 turned to January 1st, 2000, and not much happened. There were a few headaches caused by the transition, but nothing disastrous. Some of the glitches were more comical than catastrophic. My favorite being a video store that tried to charge a customer a $91,000 late fee because computers showed that a rented movie was being returned 100 years late. <laughs> Here's what one author, later reflecting on Y2K, wrote. Amid the uncertainty, some Americans stocked up on food, water, and guns in anticipation of a computer-induced apocalypse. Ominous news reports warned of possible chaos if critical systems failed, but behind the scenes, those tasked with avoiding the problem were correctly confident the New Year's beginning would not bring disaster. So if you watch the news or scroll social media feeds, you are well aware that ominous news reports continue to thrive. They didn't go away after Y2K. And probably the most common response to ominous news reports is anxiety. So one of the things that I hope to accomplish this morning is to answer the question, what does anxiety in our hearts reveal about what we truly believe about God? And this might sound strange. It sounded strange to me when I first considered it. But the passage of scripture that we're going to look at this morning teaches that there is a kind of anxiety that is a form of pride. There is a kind of anxiety that is distrustful of God. And I wonder how that hits you this morning. Does it sound cruel? Maybe you're thinking, the person laden with anxiety is already carrying a burden, now you're telling them that they're proud and don't trust God? You're just stacking another burden onto their shoulders. And believe me, it's not at all my desire that anyone should leave here this morning more burdened. My, my goal is actually the exact opposite. But sometimes it's necessary to feel the full weight of a burden before we'll be inclined to give it over to the Lord. The Lord who is always working behind the scenes, ensuring that when the calendar of this life rolls into the next, no disaster will come upon his people. But before we look at the word of God together, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, you are able and willing to carry every burden that we have. Please be gracious to reveal through your word and through the work of your Holy Spirit the things that are weighing us down this morning. Remind us again of your trustworthiness and help us to trust you 
with every area of our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter that was written from the Apostle Peter to a group of churches that were experiencing difficulty and suffering with more difficulty and suffering on the way. So Peter, in a wise, compassionate, pastoral way, writes to these hurting churches with the goal of helping them to both persevere through their current trials and prepare them for the trials to come. Because suffering has a tendency to make us turn in on ourselves. Even the anticipation of suffering can make us turn in on ourselves, meaning that we can become so acutely aware of the trouble in our own lives that we can become less aware of God's presence, less aware of the massive needs in the world around us. If I were to show you a photograph that was zoomed in a thousand times, all you would see is a pixelated smudge of colors. It would be impossible to know what was going on in that photograph, and it would be frustrating to try to figure it out. And that's how it can feel when we look at our suffering. So, throughout this letter, Peter takes the photograph of suffering that we're so prone to zoom in on, and he zooms way out so his readers can see backward and forward and upward. Backward, reminding them of all God has done for them by sending Jesus to bear their sins and all the benefits of being a forgiven child of God. Peter points them forward, reminding them of what God will do and the eternal glory that they will one day enjoy. And he points them upward, reminding them of who God is, that he is powerful and a compassionate God. And in having them look up and back and forward, Peter gives them and us all that we need to persevere in the midst of suffering and prepare for the trials to come. So with that tiny bit of context, I'm now going to read from 1 Peter chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, follow along with me. Verses 5 and 6 will be the focus this morning, but I'm going to start with the last verse of chapter 4 and read through the 11th verse of chapter 5. So 1 Peter 4, 19 through 5.11. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, 
knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter here urges or exhorts Christians how to conduct themselves toward one another and toward God in a way that is consistent with everything that he's told them in chapters 1 through 4. So with verses 6 and 7 as the focus, here's the main idea for this morning. The remedy for anxious pride is humble trust in a powerful, caring God. The remedy for anxious pride is humble trust in a powerful, caring God. And along with that main idea, I'll have just two points to consider. First, humble yourselves. God is mighty. And second, humble yourselves. He cares. So verse 6 begins, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What is humility? Well, according to my Bible dictionary, it's a personal quality of being free from arrogance and pride and having an accurate estimate of one's own worth. So there's your dictionary definition, but what does humility look like in action? A humble person doesn't use others in order to gain a higher standing for self. The person with humility doesn't look down on others. Humble people consider others more important than themselves so that even if a person has a position of authority, they seek to use that position for the good of those under their authority. Humble people are willing to intentionally lower themselves in order to lift someone else up, even if it's costly. Humility is the willingness to serve others even beyond our own self-interest. So those are some examples of what horizontal humility looks like, what it looks like to be humble in relation to other people. But what does vertical humility look like? What does it mean to be humble before God, which is what this text is telling us to do? And we won't truly be humble in relation to others until we see how dependent and small we are in relation to God. So what does Peter have in mind here when he says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. If we were to take this in context of the whole letter, humble yourselves means to accept your place in life, to accept your circumstances as either sent by or allowed by God. Humility before God means that we don't fight against his sovereign hand even when he brings us into times of testing. We remember that because he's in complete control, everything we experience must first be filtered through his mighty, caring hand. Quote, True humility flows from recognizing one's complete dependence on God and is expressed by the acceptance of one's role and position in God's economy. Complete dependence expressed by acceptance of one's role and position in God's economy. Don't we all at times struggle to accept our position in God's economy? I have a five-year-old son who struggles to accept his role. 
He told me the other day that he wanted to be my dad. When I asked him why, he said, so I can be in charge of you. But after asking him some clarifying questions, I found out that he doesn't want any of the responsibilities of the dad role. He just wants the privileges. And what he really wants is to be in charge of himself. He thinks that when I put limits on his screen time and sugar intake, that I'm subjecting him to cruel and unnecessary trials. If it were up to him, candy would be the main course of every meal, and as much as I try to explain to him the harm that can come from eating junk food or playing video games all the time, he's still convinced that I'm just being mean. How dare I impose my will on him? And then I think about the many times in my own life that I've been angry and upset about my circumstances. And I may not have had the boldness to tell God how mean I thought he was, but my refusal to accept what God had allowed into my life showed that I really believed what I really believed about God in those moments. The resentment that I felt toward those challenging circumstances is evidence against me that I didn't want God to be in charge of my life. I wanted to be in charge of my life. God, how dare you limit my screen time and make me eat vegetables? I have a real, a really good plan for how my life should play out, and you keep messing it up. You're standing in the way of what I want. You're getting in the way of what I think is best. And I probably wouldn't say those things out loud, but what I'm communicating by my resistance and my chafing against God's providence is that I'm smarter than God. It's pride. And pride is no small sin. Pride is setting up our own throne in order to rival God's rule. So Peter here sternly yet lovingly urges us toward humility. Because you may have noticed the therefore in verse 6, which connects it to verse 5. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The only acceptable posture for creatures like us in relation to our creator is a posture of humility. So I've talked about humility as humbly accepting our life circumstances as part of God's will, but what about the people that God puts into our lives? And especially, what about the people that God puts over our lives? Those in positions of authority. Peter has a lot to say in answer to that. In chapters 2 and 3, he deals with how Christians should behave in various authority structures. And he keeps using a word that causes many of us to cringe. The word subject. Subject yourselves or submit yourselves. It means to voluntarily put yourself under the will of another. With the, with the implication here that by subjecting ourselves to God-ordained authorities, we are at the same time humbly subjecting ourselves to God. With the reverse also being true, by refusing to accept and subject ourselves to God-ordained authority, we're refusing to accept and subject ourselves to God. We're refusing to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. It starts, Be subject 
for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject for the Lord's sake. And then he goes on to instruct Christians how they should conduct themselves in various human institutions. And it's outside the scope of what we can cover this morning, but I encourage you to take some time later today to read this section, chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 9, so you can get a better idea of what humbling yourself before God looks like in these human relationships. True humility flows from recognizing one's complete dependence on God and is expressed by the acceptance of one's role and position in God's economy. And speaking of God's economy, or the way that God has organized the world, and getting us back to chapter 5, humbling ourselves before God involves being a humble church. I'm going to read a quote from a man named Tom Schreiner who has some helpful insights on the first five verses of chapter 5 in light of the responsibility of believers to submit themselves to authority. He says this, The purpose is not to encourage obedience no matter what leaders might say. For if leaders give counsel that contravenes God's moral standards or violates the gospel, then they should not be followed. Nor is Peter suggesting that leaders are exempt from accountability before the congregation. Elders are admonished not to use their authority as dictatorial rulers, but are to serve those under their charge. Conversely, those who are under leadership should be inclined to follow and submit to their leaders. They should not be resisting the initiatives of leaders and complaining about the direction of the church. They should not be resisting the initiatives of leaders and complaining about the direction of the church unless, to requote what I've already quoted, unless leaders give counsel that contravenes God's moral standards or violates the gospel. If the elders of this church should ever lead in an immoral direction or cease to be shaped by the gospel, then it would be appropriate to prayerfully, lovingly resist. But it's been my observation that the men who have been charged, verse 2, to shepherd this flock of God and to exercise oversight, they are committed to God's moral standards and they are committed to the gospel. And really, the only time I've seriously questioned their leadership is when they allowed me to preach. <laughs> Thanks, guys. In verse 4, Jesus is called the chief shepherd, which makes the elders his under-shepherds. And so I'll say it again. By subjecting ourselves to God-ordained authority, we are at the same time humbly subjecting ourselves to God. And by refusing to subject ourselves to God-ordained authority. We're refusing to humble ourselves before God. But the quote continues, smooth relations in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. When believers recognize that they are creatures and sinners, they are less apt to be offended by others. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. And lucky for us, we have an opportunity to put these things into practice today. At 12 o'clock, the members of this church will be gathering to discuss the affairs of the church. And after a difficult 
and tense year, it would be wise of us to listen to Peter's words from chapter 3, verse 8, where he says to the church, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And now to finish verse 6, the reference to God's mighty hand speaks of God's power and is most likely an allusion to when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. The image of God's mighty hand is used multiple times in Exodus and Deuteronomy. For example, Deuteronomy 5.15 says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And I would remind you, Christian, that you were a slave to sin, and the Lord your God rescued you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The act of rescuing sinners from sin and death was arguably the greatest demonstration of God's power, and if he accomplished that, he will certainly, end of verse 6, exalt you at the proper time. In his omnipotence, he has the power to do so. In his omniscience, he will do so at the right time. But rescuing sinners was not only a demonstration of God's power, it was also the supreme example of humility. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 says this of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the form of God, the highest position, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, lowly position, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God created humans in a high place, made in his image, made to rule over creation, but we weren't content with that high place. We wanted the highest place. And in, and in seeking to take the place of God, we fell to the lowest place. But God, in his grace, humbly went himself to the lowest place and was exalted back to the highest place so that one day those who humbly trust in him will again receive the high place that we lost. He will exalt us at the proper time. The proper time here probably referring either to death or to the return of Christ. This is Peter once again pointing us forward to the eternal glory which awaits us. Humble yourselves. God is mighty. But we haven't yet reached that eternal glory. We're still here in this in-between stage surrounded by ominous news reports often having legitimate concerns about our future in this life, which is what Peter addresses next and brings us to our second point. Humble yourselves. God cares. He cares. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. First, notice that this is not a new sentence. Some Bible translations put a period at the end of verse 6 which makes verse 7 look like a new exhortation, but it's not. The humble yourselves from verse 6 is the main verb, 
And the casting your anxieties of verse 7 is the participle, which tells us how we are to humble ourselves. And so with that connection in mind, let's first consider what is anxiety. And that's not a simple question to answer because there are different types of anxiety. But rather than explaining the different types, I want to focus on what Peter has in view here. I do, however, want to acknowledge that for some people, anxiety may be the result of a physiological malfunction that can cause sometimes debilitating medical disorders. And so if anyone here suffers from an anxiety disorder, I pray that this sermon would be a benefit to you, but I want to be clear that the anxiety you experience may not be this kind of anxiety. Okay, the anxiety pictured here is fearful anguish coupled with uncertainty. It's the anticipating of misfortune as if God didn't exist. Anxiety is fretful worry about something that hasn't happened, but that we fear will happen. It's a mental, emotional burden that we carry around in response to either a real or perceived future threat. It's the burden that we carry when we fail to recognize the providence of God in our lives and seek to live independently from him. Spurgeon said this, The very essence of anxious care is the imagining that we are wiser than God and the thrusting of ourselves into his place to do for him that which we dream he either cannot or will not do. This audacity has in it the very nature of sin, to attempt to know better than God. That was Spurgeon, and this is from my ESV study Bible. Worry is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God. Schreiner says that worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all the problems in their lives in their own strength. The only God they trust is themselves. So I chose to list this string of quotes simply to show you that I'm not trying to make up a connection between anxiety and pride just so I can have something novel to preach this morning. This is what the passage teaches. There is a kind of anxiety that is a form of pride. So what effect does this kind of anxiety have on us? Remember the parable of the sower. We looked at it a few weeks ago in Luke. The sower throws seed, which represents the word of God. He throws the seed into a field, which represents human hearts. And some of the seed falls on thorny ground. A plant starts to grow but is choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. The Greek word for cares is the same word that Peter uses for anxieties. When we don't hand these cares, these worries about life, over to God, we become unfruitful at best, and at worst, it may be a sign that the word of God has never really taken root in our hearts at all. And have you noticed how a person who gets tangled up in the cares of the world has a tendency to tangle up others with them? For example, the past year has been the source of many difficulties. Just take two of the big ones. There's been all this 
political tension on the one hand, and on the other hand, everything related to COVID-19. We're all affected by politics, and we're all affected by the coronavirus, and many people are concerned about the future. And many of those concerns are legitimate concerns. But what do we do with those concerns? If you take those concerns and throw them on your own back in the form of anxiety, you may notice yourself talking less and less about the Word of God and more and more about your worries. You zoom in on the cares of this world and forget the big picture. You forget to look back to the sacrifice of Jesus that made you righteous before God and forget to look forward to the return of Christ when he will make all things right. And when you lose focus on these things, it shows up in your conversation with others. Think about the last few weeks and the conversations that you've had with family members and friends and coworkers or other members of this church. Think about the things that you've posted or reposted on social media. If your speech is dominated by complaints about people and circumstances, or if you're constantly expressing your frustration and animosity toward those who are in authority over you, then you may be guilty of the anxious pride that Peter has in view here. And I would remind you, the remedy for anxious pride is humble trust in a powerful, caring God. So what am I not saying? I'm not saying that it's never okay to warn of the concerning trends or policies and the negative effects that they may have down the road. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take wise precautions when possible. I'm not saying that we never stand up for what is right, even if that means resisting authorities. What I am saying is that when we're called upon to do any of these things, we're to do so with gentleness and respect. Peter says in chapter 2 that we're to keep our conduct honorable. There's a right way and a wrong way to talk about the evils in the world and the trials that they cause. The wrong way is the way that's driven by anxiety that has failed to put God and the truth about his sovereignty into practice. The right way is the way of humble trust in a mighty, caring God. So as I read through Peter's letter over the last few weeks, it was, it was an encouragement to me that he doesn't try to minimize or dismiss the painful experiences or future concerns of these churches. Instead, he points us to a God who cares deeply about his troubled people, a God who, when we're tossed around by the storms of life, gently reminds us that he's with us that he will bring us safely through, and that he's using every hardship for our good and for his glory. If you're a note taker, you may want to write this down. God is far more concerned about our welfare than we are. He's far more concerned about your well-being than you are. And so he exhorts us to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Spurgeon tells a story of a man 
who was walking down the high road with a pack on his back. He was growing weary and therefore glad when a gentleman came along in a carriage. Keep in mind, this was before automobiles. A man came along in a carriage and asked him to take a seat with him. The gentleman noticed that he kept the pack strapped to his shoulders and said to him, Why do you not put your pack down? Why, sir, said the traveler, I did not venture to impose. It was very kind of you to take me up, and I could not expect you to carry my pack as well. Why, said his friend, do you not see that whether your pack is on your back or off your back, I have to carry it? My hearer, it is so with your trouble. Whether you worry or do not worry, it is the Lord who must care for you. This passage is an invitation for the weary, troubled soul to find rest in the mighty, caring hand of God. He isn't apathetic or indifferent toward our distress. He cares for us. He doesn't roll his eyes at our petty concerns, but graciously tells us to give them over to him. He's leading us into the peace, joy, and rest that comes from entrusting an unknown future to a known God. He is far more concerned about our welfare than we are. So he doesn't just ask us to cast some of our anxieties on him. He tells us to cast all of our anxieties on him. Peter doesn't tell us explicitly how to cast our anxieties on God, but there are passages that do. Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the God of peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here the way to be free from anxiety is to go to God in thankful prayer. Focusing on thanksgiving has a wonderful power to protect us from being dominated by everything that seems to be going wrong in the world. But most important when we pray is just to remember who we're talking to. Remember the main idea? The remedy for anxious pride is humble trust in who? A powerful, caring God. A powerful, caring God. And when we address God as Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, that's what we're reminded of. He is our Father, which emphasizes his care for his children. But he's not just your average earthly father. He is our Father in heaven. He is above all, powerful, reigning over the affairs of earth. These four words, our Father in heaven, Teach us that God is as compassionate as he is capable. Understanding who God is and casting our anxieties on him also enables us to do verses 8 and 9. To be sober-minded and watchful, to be aware of the devil's schemes and to resist him. Anxiety clouds our minds and keeps us from seeing clearly so rather than resist the devil, 
Anxiety can cause us to resist the very circumstances and people that God is using for our good and his glory. And the devil is roaring. He's using COVID-19 restrictions and political upheaval and social unrest and an uncertain future to roar at God's sheep. We can either run to the chief shepherd, entrusting our souls to a faithful creator while doing good, or we can panic and run from him, making ourselves unproductive and unfruitful and miserable in the world. So up to this point, I've primarily been speaking to my Christian brothers and sisters, but for a minute, I'd like to speak to those who are not Christians. As long as you hold on to your sin, there's no use trying to cast your anxieties on God. He's opposed to you. As long as you persist in trying to rule your own life, you're actively living as an enemy of your true king and creator. But God provided a way for your sins to be forgiven through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now he calls you to turn from your sin and to humbly trust in his sacrifice on your behalf. And if you do that, he'll remove the guilt of your sin, clothe you in the righteousness of Christ, and make you his child. Listen as I read from the end of 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If we can trust him to carry our sins, and we can trust him, then we can trust him to carry our anxieties too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are compassionate and mighty. I ask that you would take every burden from us this morning, every anxiety and every sin. We thank you for sending Jesus to suffer for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to you. Help us to humbly entrust ourselves into your mighty, caring hand. God, we love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.